ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Natasha Mitchell with Big Ideas. When Goldilocks stumbled on the home of the three bears, she tried all their beds and all their bowls of porridge until she found what was just right. Well, astrophysicists like to evoke Goldilocks too when they're hunting for other planets that could sustain life. The conditions have to be just right the Goldilocks zone. And you're about to find out what that is. In our solar system, the Earth orbits around the giant star we affectionately know as the Sun. But what's happening beyond our solar system? And how the hell would you find out? Are there other planets, exoplanets in the universe that could feel a little like home to us? And for that matter... Goldilocks. Your chief of mission is host and superstar astrophysicist and TV presenter Tamara Davis from the University of Queensland. And joining her aboard the spaceship that is the World Science Festival Brisbane is astrophysicist Dr Benjamin Pope, also from the University of Queensland. He studies stars and the planets that orbit them. Astrophysicist Dr Chelsea Wang from the University of Southern Queensland. She's on the hunt for planets orbiting other stars. Astronomer Professor Peter Tuthill from the University of Sydney works on telescopes deployed in space and the only Australian with an experiment aboard NASA's extraordinary James Webb Space Telescope. Planetary astronomer Dr Michelle Bannister from the University of Canterbury is focused on the exploration and observation of small worlds in our solar system and beyond. Small worlds, I'm so intrigued. So let's go hunting for exoplanets. Over to Tamara. So, what's an exoplanet? Put simply, it is a planet that orbits another star. We know about our star, the Sun, and the eight planets of our solar system. Some of you in the audience may remember when we used to say there was nine planets in the solar system, and yes, I was one of those evil astronomers who voted to demote Pluto from its planet position. Yes, I know. The, um, well, it was because we're learning more about our solar system all the time, right? And we discovered that there was a lot of other stuff out there like Pluto in Pluto's orbit, and it was either promote everything to planet status or demote poor Pluto. And we astronomers are lazy people. We don't want to be updating the textbooks every year. So we chose to put Pluto's demotion was the best plan. Now it's a dwarf planet. But for centuries, people have been wondering whether all of those hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy and the trillions of stars out in the wider universe might host their own solar systems. And if you lived before 1992, then you lived in a world where we did not know the answer to that question, because it is very, very difficult to see planets. Right? Stars are huge, they're enormous, they're glowing. Planets are tiny and they're just mostly reflecting the light from their stars. It makes them really hard to see. But with innovative technology and techniques, astronomers have broke open that block box and the floodgates have opened and we now know of thousands of planets that orbit other stars. The questions have moved from not whether they exist anymore, but what kinds of planets are out there? What's the sort of population look like? Are there any Earths out there? And do these planets have atmospheres like ours potentially? And what are they made of? These sort of questions that might help answer one of the most fundamental questions of 
Are we alone in the universe? So, uh, to kick us off, I might start by asking you, Michelle. So, if we seem to have quite a range of planets in our own solar system. Do we see the same kinds of planets uh, around other stars? We have planets like the one we're currently on, which is a rocky planet. And then we have planets that are much larger than this, ones whose atmospheres are much more dominated by gases. And this is kind of the, the broad two types of planets that you start to see both at this star, and then when we look at other stars, you start to see this as well. So this is a commonality. What we see at our star, we see across the whole galaxy. So it's how that varies that then that's where the, the detail starts to get really interesting. So how do you categorize the ones that are in our solar system? Is rocky Ooh. and gaseous enough? Well, I like to say we have, we have four planets and a lot of little rocks, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not in the Pluto as a planet game. I, I help find more of the cousins of Plutos. We have thousands of those now. So, for me, it's how do we look at the biggest worlds in our solar system and how they've sculpted things over time? Because where they are today is not necessarily where they started. And that means when you look at a planetary system, we're seeing it as a snapshot. But that's not necessarily how it's changed and evolved through time. Like, you know, people go from children to adults, planetary systems are doing the same. So, Peter, we, the small number of planets that are orbiting us, we're down from eight now to four, how do they compare to the exoplanets that we've discovered so far? What yeah, sort of worlds I've, I've are actually out there? heard the, um, the joke made that planets are the round-off era in star formation. It's just this little scruff left over after a messy lunch. Um, <laughs> and... Well, the planets that we have found, what we're seeing is really very much a reflection of the techniques we're using to find those planets. We're very, very biased. Actually, my contract might forbid me from saying this, but we're actually terrible at finding planets. We've got 5,000 in catalogues, and we, we like to boast about this, but there are teeming billions of them in the galaxy, and almost all of those planets we're entirely blind to. We're sort of, we can find the ones where we get lucky, is really the way to put it. The, um, the planets we're finding, and if, if I'm allowed a little digression here into sort of social anthropology, there was a, a wonderful experiment done where a sculpture was made of a, the ideal man and the ideal woman, and this was based on data that was taken very early. Uh, the, the male data was all around from wartime measurements of soldiers after demobilization in World War I, and they had to wait till mass manufacturing of clothes before they had halfway decent measurements of the average woman. Um, and they made these, are called Norm and Norma. It's a fascinating thing if you want to look these up, these statues. But then a, a, a newspaper in Cleveland put out a, a competition, and thousands of women entered this competition to find Norma. And the funny thing was they couldn't. They found uh, somebody who they awarded the prize to, but she didn't have exactly the average measurements, and nobody does. It's a really amazing thing, because you had to be exactly average in so many ways. Where I'm going with this is that we bring our own preconceptions to a lot of these things, and we bring our preconceptions to what we're looking for in the sky. And it turns out that the preconceptions we bought were that we're looking for a solar system with a Jupiter and some rocky ones in the middle and maybe a couple of other ones we can forget about out in the outer solar system. And it turns <laughs> out that's a very rare configuration. There's almost nothing up there like that. In fact, ours is the rarest of the configurations uh, that we see. The TRAPPIST system, for example, is one we'll come to later in the talk, and it has a whole bunch of 
planets that are all almost the same. There's no gas giant there, there's no big ones, there's no little ones. We're finding that we don't know what we thought we knew. I think it's great to be surprised with the data that comes in. That means you're learning something, right? Yeah. Um, so Chelsea, are we surprised about the stars? Like, uh, you know, we've, you've discovered many planets around other stars now. Are they just all stars like our sun? Yeah, actually one of the biggest surprises we had in the past two decades is that almost all kinds of stars host planets. But we also found out stars that's much younger than our sun, that's about five years old in human age, would host planets. Stars that's really close to their deaths also host planets. We found out stars that's five or ten times bigger than our sun host planets, and stars that's much, much smaller than our sun, like the Trappist one host star that's about one tenth or less the size of the sun, hosts many planets. Mm -hmm. So, the diversity of planet hosting stars out there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's really interesting is that for the really tiniest stars, that's the red dwarfs, they tend to host uh, more planets than the bigger stars. This is kind of a surprise to us. Ben, are there actual, like, different, are there, which type of star is best for hosting planets? Is that something we know yet? Well, exactly as Chelsea was saying, it's easiest to find planets around M dwarfs, as Peter was saying, and, and also we find lots of M dwarfs, so these, these red dwarfs, the smallest possible ones. Astronomers have been ruthlessly chasing habitable planets, where habitable has to go in scare quotes because, you know, it's very hard to say what it really means for something to be habitable for other kinds of life other than our own. Yeah, no, there's all these red dwarfs with uh, lots and lots of planets. They're very easy to find because the star's very small, and so a planet is much larger relative to the star, and so you get a great signal from it. And uh, they all seem to host planets, and it's a, it's a really big question. Are any of these planets habitable? This is something that we're trying to address with James Webb observations of TRAPPIST is this very famous system. By the way, you know why it's called TRAPPIST? It's because the Belgians named their telescopes after classically Belgian foods and drinks. And so this telescope was named after Trappist beer. And the upgraded version is named after Speculoos biscuits. And so they're also searching for plants with Speculoos. And so if they find something that'll be Speculoos one, I don't think they have one yet, do they? No, that's not yeah. I want a Trappist they... one and a Speculoos one and have it as a meal. <laughs> and they haven't found Trappist two yet. No, no, it's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Are there, are there any um, planets around double stars? Because I know there's a lot of double stars out there. Uh, yes, there are definitely planets around double stars. We have... Tatooine, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so the Star Wars one actually yeah. is possible? Um, yeah, and we also have planets around triple stars. Uh, the three-body novel actually was correct. Yeah, yeah awesome. <laughs> cool science fiction does come up with science facts sometimes. Mm. We've mentioned a few times that it's really hard to find these planets. I know. Uh, who would like to describe? Michelle, would you like to describe how the, the first planets were discovered? Oh, I mean, the first planets, you go back 50,000 years and our ancestors saw them, right? So <laughs> start with your eyes and work up from there, right? So this is one of those things where when you get into the, um, the age of uh, um, people starting to create and build telescopes, that's allowed us to start to directly image planets. And so we started to, um, finding more of those in our system. But we also started to see planets by where other planets weren't. In the way that as we built a better understanding of gravity, people could say the paths of planets around stars, they pull on the other planets. And so Neptune is a lovely example of this, where um, a mathematician in France and one in the UK sat down at roughly the same time and started to work through if these planets in our system are moving around the sky. What else is, what's the shadow that's leaving there? And so that was how, you know, Neptune started to, um, to, to be found was through the mathematics. 
So it was actually that the other planets were being perturbed there. So discoveries of planets in our solar system came from the gravitational sort of perturbation mm -hmm. and the fact that they weren't going just in nice, easy circles or ellipses. Yeah. yeah, and we still have a planet in our system today, which is in the sense of we're looking at the paths of small, tiny distant worlds, um, several tens or hundreds of them um, in the outer solar system, and seeing whether those have enough of the signature of something else that's more massive, maybe perhaps five to ten Earth masses, that could be perturbing or she shepherding those. It's very much an open question at this point if there's enough evidence to see. But yeah, we may have another planet coming that way. So yeah. there is more to be found in our own solar system. System. Even though we've been staring yeah. at it and it's in our backyard, planets are so faint that it's still possible that there's another planet out there that we still haven't detected, even with all of our modern technology. Make a better telescope. The story maybe starts with Uranus um, before Neptune, which was the last one we discovered by going out and looking up. And it was discovered, in fact, we very nearly had a planet called George, because <laughs> the proposed name that Herschel put for the planet was after King, the King, the King George, and the French were having none of that <laughs> at all. So we have the French to thank for the fact that we don't have a planet Jupiter, Saturn, George. George. <laughs> um, but having discovered George, then we had enough of a knowledge of the dynamics and the, the kinematics of the outer solar system, we could go predicting the next one. And this is, of course, uh, where the next ice giant came from. But they kept playing this game, and they thought they were getting better and better at it. And there were perturbations on the orbits of the outer planets. And they predicted Pluto to be somewhere up there based on perturbations in orbits. In actual fact, this was an error. There were well, no perturbations. It was it's, it's a little it, more complicated than that. You probably have heard some of the famous astronomers with this, but it was actually a woman who was right out of her degree at over at MIT, and, um, and she went to work at Lowell Observatory, and she was one of the earliest computers, the people who sat down and did the mathematics, and she was employed at that observatory by Percival Lowell to make those calculations, but he gave her incorrect data. So she spent years, oh, no. yeah, actually putting together <laughs> where this was going to be. So when they did the telescopic observations for this young farm boy from Kansas was, oh yeah, I can point this telescope and keep looking for this planet that's been predicted, they actually got really lucky to actually come across it. And the other thing that was fortunate was timing. Pluto at that time happened to be out of the plane of our galaxy, so it wasn't on this dense background of stars, and it could actually be seen. Sometimes you just gotta be at the right time at the right place. I think one of the points to make though is it was admitted to the Planet Club based on the fact that it was big enough to shove the big guys around, and mm. it wasn't. It was a lightweight, puny ball of ice that had no role in the dynamics of the solar system. And so it became a planet and then had to be, demoted. thanks to Tamara, demoted, <laughs> shamefully, <laughs> because of this. Pluto is the one that told us that the planetary architecture changed. And yeah. that was really important for exoplanet systems because like Renu Malhotra, mm. um, in just out of her degree in her first postdoc, sat down and did the mathematics and went, Pluto has actually been moved in its orbit. It's in mm. resonance. It does this orbital ballet with Neptune. And so that told us that planets migrate, that they change the size mm. and shape of their orbits through time. And so Pluto's great. Pluto's way more important than <laughs> that. Never let on. <laughs> and at the inner end of the solar system, uh, a planet was predicted for the same reasons, a, a perturbation in the orbit. This was called Icarus. It was meant to be a, mm. a, a planet right in near the sun that was so close it was being burned. 
uh, like the mythical figure of Icarus, and that turned out to be general relativity. This yeah. was this was not uh, a perturbation due to an unseen object. Yeah, this it? one's one of the ones that's very close to my heart as someone who studies relativity, yeah. mm -hmm. is that this was the early indication that Newton's theory of gravity wasn't the be-all and end-all, and we had to go beyond that, and it was a really strong confirmation of Einstein's theory of gravity, that this orbit of Mercury wasn't quite right. Okay, so now let's step beyond our solar system. Um, how did we discover the very first planets back in the 90s? Typically do this, it's a little bit like, I think of it a bit like cracking a code. You have to find a weakness. It's, what we do is we watch for the influence of the planet on the host star, typically. And the first planets uh, around 1995 were discovered, and in fact, they kind of were hiding in plain sight. It wasn't actually ending up being a very subtle signal at all. But what you watch for is the planet orbits around its host star and it drags the host star around. Well, one way to think about it is the host star and the planet orbit a, orbit a common centre of mass. So you watch for the host star wobbling on the sky. In fact, the first one was 51 Pegasi, and it was hiding in plain sight in a way because it was really giving a much bigger signal than anyone expected to see. It's back to my Norma-Norma uh, analogy. We were thinking that planetary systems had to be like ours, and that would be very hard to see. You would see a Jupiter, would take a whole year to tug this, and it would be quite an anemic signal. And what we found instead was a big, heavy planet right next to the sun, a sun-grazing planet, a hot Jupiter, and it was completely unexpected, and people didn't even look for this signal. They were like, well, that can't be a planet. That can't be what planets look like, because we know what planets look like. They look like the ones we know about here. So um, we just uh, now have turned this technique and other techniques where the planet passes in front of the host star, and we get a little blink in the light, a little eclipse. And these are the predominant ways we go about finding planets. We're good at finding heavy planets, close to their host stars. We're very poor at finding planets like Earth, little rocks, very far away. So this, I remember being at university in the 1990s and I was there basically as these first planets were being discovered. And I remember this big surprise about having these massive planets really close to the star and that this whole, whole thing, because we didn't think that Jupiter's could, could be that close to the star, right? And so you're saying the way that the original way we found it was by this gravitational pull wobbling the star back and forth because things are orbiting their common centre of mass rather than just the, our sun doesn't sit still either it gets wobbled back and forth by all, all of the planets. There was like an occasional planet being discovered year by year mm. early on in the story, and then towards the end there was this massive burst of planet discoveries. A couple mm -hmm. of massive bursts sort of going on in there. Mm -hmm. So, Chelsea, can you yeah. explain why this sudden increase? So, the, the launch of the Kepler mission by NASA, it was launched in 2009. Mm -hmm. I actually did my PhD with lots of the data provided by the Kepler mission. Kepler mission is the one that actually taught us about almost every star out there has planets. If you hear any exoplanet population statistic, most likely it's from this mission. So the Kepler mission stares at that little patch of sky for about four years, just a little bit short of discover yeah. us like planets around sun-like stars, exactly, I think. So it was and just looking at that patch of sky? Yeah, exactly. Kepler.
Before it was retired in 2018, it investigated that patch of sky, the Milky Way, for the existence of Earth-sized exoplanets. Well, that same year, TESS, or the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, was launched. Now, it detects exoplanets by looking for dips in the visible light coming from the stars they orbit around. So each time an exoplanet transits past its star scientists see a dip in light. And if there's a periodic pattern, bingo, it's probably an exoplanet. And how much of a dip is a clue to the planet's size? Tess looks at more than a million stars every month and has discovered many exoplanets. One of the first was named Pi Mensae, this Neptune-like ice giant planet. For our space specialists, Chelsea Wang, Benjamin Pope, Peter Tuthill and Michelle Bannister... This was incredibly exciting. In fact, some of them were there at the discovery, as they tell host Tamara Davis. Kepler and Tess, both absolutely amazing instruments and have discovered uh, fantastic things. Do you guys remember where you were when the first things were uh, discovered or these spacecraft were launched or anything? I I was there at the test launch. Were you there as well? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, I will claim I'm the one discovered the first test planets. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. Tell us more. Yeah, yeah, so the test data came down somewhat around August 2018. So you tried looking for that little dim in the star that happens periodically. And we're just staring at the light curves, which are the brightness time series of thousands of stars. We suddenly found out this one particular star that has a tiny little change, and the star itself has a like common person's name. So if you have heard about exoplanet naming planets or naming stars, you hear all these telephone numbers mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> you had Kepler um, 1089b, something like that. But this particular star has a name that's called Pi Mensae. So this means it's actually in the constellation of Mensae and it has the letter Pi as its name. That's what we used to call a naked eye star. And we immediately got super excited um, because the star is so bright that a good eyesight people, not me, can see <laughs> it in the southern sky with naked eye. What's really interesting is that that system actually has another planet in the system for people known for fi- more than 15 years. And it, it's a Jupiter-like planet on a fairly eccentric orbit. So the, when the planet is closest to its whole star, it's kind of like the distance between us and the sun. And when it's furthest away um, to its whole star, it's kind of at the orbital period of Jupiter and the sun. Mm-hmm. So planets are on this super oblate mm-hmm. orbit. Yeah, because in our solar system, the orbits are relatively round. All the orbits are ellipses, right? But they're pretty close to circular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure, we have some disagreement <laughs> over here. Feel free to disagree with yeah. me. But... Is it weird to see elliptical orbits like this in exoplanets? Uh, it is, oh. actually. It, it's wonderful because yeah. it's a signature of something happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a signature of change. I don't yeah. know. Peter? <laughs> oh, I was going to defend my earlier remark that we're bad at doing our job because she's making us look very good. <laughs> <laughs> what is the chance of seeing Earth if you're an alien on Alpha Centauri looking back? Mm. It's really, really tiny. That's why we need to looking at a million stars at the 1%? same time. Less than 1%? It's Half. kind of less than 1%, yeah. Mm. That's actually why most of the planets we discover with the transit method are within the orbital period of Mercury, mostly only a few days, mm. yeah. 
so if I look at a star or a planetary system out there, then to be able to see like an eclipse or something like that, there has to be a certain alignment, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it has to be passing exactly in front of your eye. If I've got a, a like the planetary system is like a disc yeah. and it's a bit sort of inclined with respect to my line of sight, then the planet's not actually going to pass between me mm. and the sun or no. the star. Yeah. Yeah. But so if it's... And so if it's closer to the star than it's in that inner orbit, then it can survive being a, bit, a little bit inclined? Yeah. Uh, so the fact that we're actually founding cells of transiting planets, that really says there are lots of planets out there. Uh, do all planets have stars? All right. Um, so in the same way that not all planets have round orbits, <laughs> it's linked to the same thing. So when we were talking earlier about uh, um, planets migrating, actually changing the size of their orbits, you can do this kind of two ways. You can do this with planets jostling each other and gravitationally perturbing an orbit onto something that's much more elliptical, much less circular. They form circular for the most part. That's the, the disk of dust and gas congealing into planets. Or you can do a flyby of another star past the system, can put enough energy in sometimes to push a planet up. And sometimes you can jostle a planet enough with a close flyby, you can yeet the planet entirely. <laughs> and now you have a planet without its star. Very cool. Mm. This is sort of similar to how we, we actually use something like that effect when we use mm -hmm. gravity assists to get yes. our satellites out. Yeah, I mean, it's you're taking advantage of the, of the potential energy that anything massive has close to it. So if you take your small spacecraft and you fly it close to your big massive thing, whether it's a star such as Parker Solar Probe is currently dipping in, or um, in the way that you know, we also did this with some of our other interplanetary spacecraft, or you do it near Jupiter is a really good one to use if you want to go far into the outer solar system like the Voyagers did. You're borrowing a little energy from that big massive object. And so that's the gravity assist. You, do, you fly in close, you get some of that energy, and it speeds you up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so actually the mechanism create lots of the rogue planet, the planet with our stars, is yeah. similar to the mechanism that create lots of the giant planet that's super close in their whole stars. Just one, you are throwing a planet out, yeah. another you are throwing a planet in, but sometimes you can actually throw them both directions mm -hmm. and you create uh, two type planets. That's yeah. well, what's really exciting is, of course, it not merely throws out planets from solar system, it throws out many, many smaller rocks. We've yes. only recently just started to find them. Yeah, they, we call these interstellar objects, so mm. they can range from the asteroids and comets mm. that any planetary system makes, mm. and we think there could be, oh, a very, very large number. So if you think of like, you know, 10 to the 3 is a thousand, or 10 to the 6 is a million, we think there's on the order of 10 to the 26. Mm. Right? Think how many thousand million trillion you have to go to to get to that. Of these little worlds, maybe the size of, you know, the city, that are wandering between the stars, all formed from different planetary systems. That's just within our galaxy? Our galaxy. Mm -hmm. And then you can do that in other galaxies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is all amazing, but is it fair, I don't know, is it fair to say that this is indirect evidence? Maybe this is just a classification thing, but we haven't taken a picture of these yet. Is that oh, right? We've seen two interstellar objects that are... Oh, yes, oh, yes, yeah. these, these. I was thinking of the, of the planets outside we're not actually seeing the planets sort of 
shining by their own light or even by a reflective light. Ben. We've seen a few. I think <laughs> you're working yeah. on this, right? You know, there's a small number of planets, uh, mm. a small but growing number of planets, which have been directly imaged. Mm. Um, because, you know, the issue is that, you know, the Earth, if we were trying to see it around the sun, is something like 10 billion times fainter, depending on what, you know, wavelength you're looking at. Uh, you know, even Jupiter isn't that much, you know, brighter than the Earth. And therefore, you have to be able to suppress starlight and look at very, very high resolution at the same time in order to see these planets. Direct imaging is, you know, is coming along steadily. And so um, various technologies have had to be developed in order to both suppress starlight, either you know, directly blocking out the light of stars, uh, or, and or to get very, very high resolutions. So you can see very faint objects that are next to very bright ones. You know, there are various analogies people make, but um, you know, they're, they're so extreme that you can't even remember the numbers. You have to look for a firefly next to a searchlight you know, 100 kilometres away or something mm. is, is, is analogies that are variously made. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a firefly about a millimetre away yeah. from the brightest modern lighthouse arc light. Mm. And you're doing it from a deck of a ship 10 kilometres out to sea. Yeah. And if you're trying to do it from the ground, not from space, you're doing it through a thick storm. Yeah. On a rolling deck of a ship. So <laughs> this is why this is a hard game to play with ground-based telescopes. The promise, we, we, do, we, do, we, don't, we have easy ways to do it. We can do radio velocity, we can do transits. Mm. The reason that people, particularly Ben and I, are very excited to do it the hard way, if we can cleanly isolate the light of that planet, then, mm. then we can work wonders, we can do magic. We can actually tell you if there are clouds or if there's an ocean or if there's a bias, mm. and this is really where we want to go. Um, you know, we, we want that clean signal. Indirect techniques do tell us a lot, but they don't tell us everything that we, we really would like to know. And I think this is one of the things I find fascinating about where exoplanets are at the moment, is we're very much kind of still at the, the point of light game, right? You've got the point of light, but how do you turn the point of light into a place? And I think that's where we're really starting to see the progress happening now. Let's move on to the title sort of of this talk, which is the Goldilocks zone. Um, so are the planets eating porridge or <laughs> what, what are we talking about in this side? So let's start, Chelsea, maybe. Do you want to tell us of the planets that we're seeing, what, what sort of proportion of them resemble Earth? 4% of planets we've discovered are terrestrial planets. But terrestrial planets are extremely hard to see. They are tiny. So anything that we use in direct method, it's really, really difficult to detect the light change due to a small planet compared to the large gas ball like Jupiter. So if out of all the planets that we discover, 4% are terrestrial planets, we can infer that there are actually a lot more terrestrial planets out there that we're not seeing. So currently, we can say that if you look at about 100 stars, you found about 50 Earth-sized planets within orbital period 200 days. And we're not really sure about mm. orbital period beyond 200 days, just because of the limitation of our detection method. The best guess number we have of Earth-sized planet on a one-year orbit around sun-like stars is about 10%. So 100 stars, you have 10 Earth-like planets on one-year orbit. That's quite a lot. Yeah. So there's potentially a lot of Earths mm. out there. Does that mean, Ben, that these are all habitable? 
No, heavens no. So, I mean, um, habitable zone. So, you know, the idea is that you don't want to be too close to the star, otherwise you, you know, you're going to be too hot to live on, and you don't want to be too far away, otherwise it's going to be too cold. And we have great examples here in our solar system of Venus, Earth, and Mars. And so Venus is, you know, so hot it rains lead and clouds are made of sulfuric acid and so forth. Mars, Not very happy to live on. Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, and then you've got Mars, which is, you know, despite Andy Weir and, and you know, so forth, having movies about it, um, it would be pretty hard to live on. To be fair, the equator of Mars is actually warmer than Canada. So, you know, it... Yep. It's not that bad. It's not that bad, but it's also, you know, it's a bit cold sometimes on Earth. Um, but there are not just, it's not just about how close you are to the sun that determines this. Predominantly, the reason that Venus is so hot is because of the greenhouse effect. Um, it started out with, a, you know, a fair amount of CO2, but it also, it was close enough to the star that with its modest greenhouse warming, was able to progressively boil the oceans. Water is also a greenhouse gas. That then fed back, and so you got what was called a runaway greenhouse effect, where probably actually right at the start of, you know, Venus's life, it might have actually been habitable a bit hotter than the Earth, but it would have had oceans, it would have had, you know, um, maybe a breathable atmosphere with, with at least some oxygen in it, is what geologists seem to think sometimes maybe. But then it evolved and became uninhabitable. Again, Mars might have also started out with a lot of water and uh, a larger atmosphere, but progressively lost that over time. And so really the question of what it means to be a habitable world is how do planets evolve over time mm. and what, you know, what is the, the geophysics, the geochemistry, the atmospheric physics, the climate science of planets, much more than it is just like, oh, you know, this is, this is the right distance from the sun. And I should also clarify, a lot of people, I, I always get this question when I give talks, a lot of people say, ah, so when we find a habitable planet, when are we moving there? You know, people often think we're, you know, finding habitable planets to find planet B because we're going to destroy the Earth. I'm afraid to say we're never going to move there. That's actually not why we're finding habitable planets. Um, you know, th these are all going to be far too far away for us to ever move to. We actually do only have one habitable planet in our solar system, and I don't think we're taking care of it nearly well enough. Yeah. Yeah. Could I yeah. jump in there because... Um, yeah. There's actually quite a lot of new work on Venus, mm. and there's really fascinating new models, which if you simply just put the numbers in, you run the models, but the model Ben just gave, that it does have a runaway greenhouse, it's now you know, this hellish world with 500 degree surface temperatures, that's all true, uh, except that what the new models predict is that it might have had a habitable biosphere for two billion years, that's half the length of the solar system, and it did it with a miraculous trick. What it did is that Venus, as we know, has a very slow rotation, very long day. So what that allows it to do, according to the models, this wasn't something the scientists were trying to precipitate, it just came out of the models organically. On the day side, the oceans boiled up a massive cloud, so there's a big umbrella of cloud shielding, and all of the sunlight just bounced off. On the night side, the cloud all evaporated, as it does on a cold night, and Venus could radiate its uh, excess heat out uh, on the night side. So the belief is, the present best estimates from astronomers, is that a, Venus had this magic trick almost, a, a juggler's act, that it, was it enabled it to keep a habitable biosphere for two billion years. And there's a parable there that, you know, runaway greenhouse effects and climate change have, like Mars is another example, it had clear evidence of, of liquid water. You know, we, we see that every other day coming from NASA missions. What we have is not 
established, it's not a permanent state. The entire solar system and the universe is in a state of flux. And runaway greenhouses have happened to two of the three terrestrial planets in our own solar system. And the same models that are used to predict the daytime temperatures on Mars and on Venus work perfectly on Earth. So the people who are telling you about what's going to happen when we change this constituent of the atmosphere, they have data points and the exoplanets we're finding give us still more data points to calibrate those models. But the models actually for the greenhouse effect on Earth originated in astronomy, these radiative transfer models. They started out as astronomy models uh, run to try and predict conditions on planets like Venus and Mars. Uh, and then they were ported to the Earth where obviously the answers are rather more important. So the, the story for Venus is actually a really, really fascinating one. Well, it goes back and forth, though. Like, Martin Turbay would tell you from his models that, in fact, um, Venus has never had an ocean, that, in fact, the runaway greenhouse set in so early that it never was able to establish anything like a biosphere. And so it's really interesting that Venus and Mars are these places of contestation of models that are, in fact, some of these models are literally the same code run by the same people at the UK Met Office that they use to predict the weather. Right? Um, some of the same models predict divergent outcomes for climate change. You know, there's, there's a very scary thing, uh, the Hot House Earth paper published a year or two ago, saying that if we go past a certain tipping point, it was stratocumulus clouds will disappear. And once you go beyond that, you're totally hosed. That you, you get this um, hot house earth where it runs away to like 10 degrees of climate change and uh, you've got drought on all the continents. And so, you know, you can get this, this very scary set of predictions. And again, this ties back to these arguments literally about, you know, what's happening on Venus in the past, what's mm -hmm. happening in Mars in the past. And it all links together in terms of these climate models. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, our yeah. planetary system is the place that you yeah. go and look to go, what mm. is, so, when you tie it back to how is it happening here on Earth, we mm. can look at our worlds through time and go, how have they changed? Yeah. What does the geology tell us about what is written in the rocks of how did those potential pasts come to be? And we see this, you know, this is one thing the exoplanets tell us as well, very much, is what are the ways you can make a planet? And what are the ways you can change a planet? Mm. And we don't just have to look at our own Earth in order to, to figure out what's mm. going on there. Terrifying. <laughs> in many ways. I, I have long thought that Venus is one of, like, looking at the conditions on Venus is one of the scariest things that I've learned in my uh, astronomy career. We're learning more as scientists and engineers develop technologies like the James Webb Telescope, launched back in 2021, which has been completely incredible. Scientists have used it to observe the cosmic dust of an exploding star and measure the temperature of a rocky exoplanet in the Goldilocks zone. It's amazing stuff. Tamara Davis with Chelsea Wang, Peter Tuthill, Michelle Bannister and Benjamin Pope are exploring the exciting possibilities of habitable surfaces beyond our own solar system. If you are in this sweet spot where you don't have um, so much solar radiation that you can initiate this runaway greenhouse, but you do have a bit of a greenhouse, you know, from your own atmosphere, you do have enough sunlight, then people often define this Goldilocks zone, this habitable zone, as being where you can get liquid water on the surface. Or, or indeed, sometimes people say all three phases of water might exist on the surface of a planet. And so, you know, Earth satisfies this. Yeah, no, so you've got this Goldilocks zone where you can get all these different phases of water. And really the reason we, we think of it in these terms is that water is essential for our own life. 
uh, because it's a solvent that allows chemistry to start going in ways that are completely essential for any chemical form of life. So um, astronomers aren't wedded to this idea of the Goldilocks zone being, oh, there's liquid water or bust. Mm -hmm. You know, because you always get questions. Are oh, you astronomers? You haven't thought of anything else. No, no, people have. It's hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of papers. But water really is probably mm. the best candidate that anyone yeah. can think of as, as a yeah. solvent for life. And we keep kicking around this whole yeah. term habitable, yeah. right? And I think it's really important to mm. also go, that doesn't mean that it's inhabited. Mm. It doesn't mean there is yeah. life. All we're talking about is is this a place that has conditions where you could do reactions that we know of life using? For me, a habitable environment, as a you know, planetary scientist, I would say it's not, can you have liquid water or all three-phase water on the surface of a planet? That's way too limiting. No, 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 no. You need rock and you need a solvent and water is good for this in contact with each other and a little bit of energy. So some heat is good. And this opens up a lot more possibilities. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, yeah, we have way more habitable places in the solar system than just the surface of this one, right? Because you go five kilometers down in the crust and it stops being habitable. You go to other parts of the planet. This, you know, life is pretty good at finding regions of this planet where mm. it's not liquid water all the time. Mm. But we have those across the solar system too. It's like mm. Saturn's moon Enceladus and you have this a few tens of kilometres thick, maybe 20, maybe 50. It's still a bit up in the air. And uh, um, below this, you have liquid water ocean. You can tell from having flown a spacecraft around it and see the magnetic field and things change through it. And you see the vents. You see um, geysers coming up. And that means there's liquid water under that, but there's also a rocky core. So you can think of this as being an ideal kind of habitable environment because it has all those things. You have your solvent, you have your rock to provide to, um, rich material to do the reactions with, amino acids or anything like that. Um, and you have your source of heat, whether it's from kneading by the giant planet doing some tidal heating or whether it's radioisotopes in the planetary core decaying and giving you a bit of um, radioactive heat that way. There's all kinds of things you can do. And ice moons, they're great. Mm. Planetary systems make lots of those. <laughs> awesome. So, so let's talk about that a bit more. So the, the traditional Goldilocks zone is sort mm. of like a donut around yeah. our solar system, the bit where it's not too hot and not too cold, but just right for having liquid water on the yeah. surface or maybe <laughs> elsewhere. Um, but you're saying the, the, this is way too limiting and you should go, we should go and look at moons and planets. And so you mentioned something about like the tidal heating and stuff. So if, if it's not in the zone of this sort of donut shape around the solar system that would be at the right temperature thanks to the sun, can you go into a little bit more about what would be heating those up to give them enough heat to have liquid water? So yeah, this is this is the gravitational interaction with the giant planet. So you could, it's one of these beautiful subtle things that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with orbits. You can take the energy from the orbit and turn that into thermal heat inside the planet. It's really fun. So 
Planets are really good at doing this, and the, like, the best example is the closest moon um, of Jupiter to mm. Jupiter itself, which is covered in volcanoes, because um, Jupiter is basically needing this moon all the time, and the reason that you, you know, do needing in a um, way that you go, oh, actually, we don't want the dough to heat up too much. <laughs> yeah, you're putting energy into that, and so that's, it's covered in volcanoes as a result, and maybe you'll f end up finding in these beautiful yeah. little snowflakes of light, one of these planets that has been tidally needed in the same way. Maybe you're going to get a moon that's covered in volcanoes that's an exo-io. There was, in fact, a paper about this quite recently. So I've been looking for evidence of this um, kind of interaction uh, between stars and planets uh, yep. using radio telescopes because Io is actually magnetically connected to Jupiter. Mm. And because of its volcanism, it's spraying all this material into a cloud around Jupiter uh, in which it's driving currents magnetically, which give off radio waves. And so it's got the brightest aurora in the solar system. It's extraordinary. Mm. You know, the, the Hubble Space Telescope can see these ultraviolet aurorae dancing all over the um, uh, surface mm. of Jupiter. And so what, there was actually a very, really um, interesting paper by Melody Cow, which where she found evidence that the um, around a brown dwarf, like a scaled up version of Jupiter, like something in between a planet and a star in terms of its physics, around a brown dwarf, there was exactly the same Jupiter-like radio emission. And she hypothesized that what we are actually seeing is a moon's volcanism being recorded in the radio mm. around this brown dwarf. But yeah. maybe the scaffold excitement of this yeah. is that there are, of course, maybe people in the audience know about black smokers mm. or vents in the sub-ocean floor. So if the sun were to go out tomorrow, you could make a case that life on Earth wouldn't go extinct, that these volcanic vents in the ocean floor would still persist. All the bugs that harvest the stuff out of the volcanic vents would still... And in fact, biologists now believe maybe life started at these volcanic vents and then migrated to a, a, a sun-dependent life after having started. So the vents, of course, are what you're excited about in these sub-oceans uh, yeah, as, as the Earth analogue of what could be life. Yeah, and I mean, this ties very much together mm. with the strong mm. magnetic environments mm. because the surface of that, that's not habitable, partly because of radiation. the really strong radiation environment. But if you go under the ice, then that's protected and you've yeah. got that opportunity an for things for like... On Earth. Yeah. And in fact, on Earth, I, it's my belief that the life on Earth, the record, the fossil record of that, dates to the climactic conditions for the first possible evidence. Mm. So, so life on Earth has persisted for as long as it could have been here. So the question about whether a habitable zone is inhabited, we've only got one data point, it's Earth. So far. But, yeah. but in a timeline sense, for as long as it's been possible for life to be in here, the evidence is life was here. So that, that's at least one, I take it as an encouraging point, that if we find habitable systems up there, then they will be inhabited. That's, I'm going out on a limb. <laughs> life finds a way. <laughs> My, uh, my one paper in ast astrobiology was on that topic, is does the rapid appearance of life on Earth suggest life in the universe is common? Just looking at it from a statistical point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if, if there was no, we needed 3.8 billion years for life to evolve, then you can't learn much from that point. But if we could have evolved faster, then it's not a selection effect and, and your, your inference is statistically the sound one to, to make, yeah. And I mean, we are still in the situation of, you know, 5,000 exoplanets, all this variety. 
we don't have any exomoons yet. Mm -hmm. So we're not yet in the state where we can actually go, hey, our solar system has tens or hundreds of ice worlds with oceans that could be habitable environments, but we don't know for sure that exists around other systems oh, yet. I think we do. We've got PDS-70, uh, where we've Ooh. got uh, actually <laughs> we're witnessing the birth of some of these exomoons. True. We haven't seen moons around mature planets, but this is one of the targets that Peter and I are looking at with the James Webb Space Telescope is there's a system of planets actively being born from mm. the disks of gas and dust from which planets are formed. And, you know, it's, it's like turtles all the way down. It's disks all the way down. Is that there's um, embedded in this disk, you can see a little blob. And that is a sort of a proto-Jupiter. It's, it's a Jupiter-sized planet with a little disk around it and like, you know, how the sun formed out of a disk and planets around it, we think that Jupiter formed out of a disk with moons around it. And this is what we think we are seeing in PDS 70. Mm -hmm. So we're really excited. We've just got some James Webb data and hot off the press, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Are you going to get a moon of a moon of PDS 70? I would love to. <laughs> Let's have a moon moon. Yes. No, no, genuinely, there was a series of papers That's debating what, what to call yeah. it if you found a moon of a moon. And I think the answer was, was it Moon Moon? It's a Moon Moon. Yeah, <laughs> I hate it. Um, maybe George. <laughs> um, we can call it a George. Okay, Chelsea, I wanted you to bring you back in because in terms of the habitability, there is the other aspect as well, which is what the planets are made of. Is that right? Yeah, so majority of the exoplanet we currently see in habitable zone are really in really different environment compared to solar system planets in the habitable zone. And uh, one way actually to study, to know whether it's a habitable world or not is to actually look at their atmospheres. Um, so one way to study the atmospheres through indirect method is again the transit method. So when the planet passes in front of the star, actually the light will shine soon, the little ring of atmosphere uh, on the planet, and it will leave fingerprints of what the molecules in the atmosphere of the planets are. The goal, obviously, is to search for actual biosignatures in the atmosphere. What they are is still debatable at this point. Um, some people say ozone is a biosignature mark. Some people say um, phosphine mm -hmm. is a biosignature mark. Um, controversial one. Yes, well, controversial one. one. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> but we are still searching for them currently um, in exoplanet atmospheres. Uh, I'm looking forward to where it brings us more results. We, need, we do need to go a little further from having a, uh, you know, an absorption feature and a spectrum through to the, thinking about these as places. So what, does the geo, you know, what is the history of this place through time like? How much has that planet moved around? And what does the geology of it tell us about how that plays into the composition of its atmosphere? Because it's really hard to go, ooh, this is this you know, little... Uh, organism on the surface, something that's maybe, you know, maybe it's photosynthesizing, maybe it's a tiny little algae, and it's creating some signature in the atmosphere, like, you know, the lovely stromatolite creatures over in Shark Bay that helped bring up the oxygen level in our atmosphere, if you go back a billion years. And that going from this is the way our planet changed and gave us this complex atmospheric signature to this is a biomarker in it, something that you can only say would be caused by a creature, that's really hard. That needs everybody, not just you know, those of us who are astronomers. We need the biologists, the chemists, the geologists, the geophysicists, the geodynamicists. It's, yeah, it, it takes a community, for mm -hmm. sure. 
I think this is actually the really important thing about exoplanet science, is we've gone from detecting little signals that look like little sine waves or dips to characterising these other worlds that some of them look very, very different from anything we have in our solar system. You know, I don't think we mentioned this yet, like the majority of exoplanets that have been discovered, totally unlike anything we have an example of in our solar system, these are super-Earths and sub-Neptunes and hot Jupiters and so forth that are, we have no analogue for, you know, we, we, we can say, it's not, we don't know that a super-Earth is like Earth but bigger, or a sub-Neptune is like Neptune but smaller, we just call them that by their mass. And over the next five, 10, 20 years, what we're gonna do is we're actually gonna to start to fill out what are these like as places? What are their atmospheres like? What are their histories like? And I think the value of that is not just, it's gonna to produce tons and tons of papers and PhDs and I'm gonna write lots of grant applications <laughs> about it, which, which I am, you know. But, but it starts to transform the way that we see Earth as a place and our solar system as a place. We start to see ourselves and our position in the universe. And I would like to think that that's sort of um, almost uh, another Copernicus sort of thing that we're about to go through in the sense that we, we're not even gonna be, I think, the only habitable place in the universe, whether, whether or not we're the only life. We're gonna have to see Earth as a single special fragile place in a universe full of places that are like it or unlike it, I don't know. But whatever the answer is, we're gonna start to find it in the next five, 10, 20 years. That's yeah. exciting. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be... Yeah. When do we go from being a single thread of a story mm. to part of a tapestry of story? Mm. It's going to be a maturity, I think, not mm. just for you know, this field of astronomy, but also for the broader community as where we start to do that next stage of that Copernican revolution of seeing mm. not just that physics happens the mm. same all across the galaxy, but that planet formation happens in these beautiful complex ways all across the galaxy. Mm. And I think the thing that's exciting me about that is the little products of planet formation, these interstellar objects that I was talking about earlier. These are little postcards from snapshots of the planetary formation process that happened at other stars. And so they wander the galaxy and some of them pass through our solar system and we can look at them the same way we look at a comet or an asteroid and we can measure it and it's a message in a bottle. It's something that another star made planets and then sent it to us and goes, hey, this is how it happened here and we can compare how that happened across the galaxy. So to me, that's going to be really mm. exciting is seeing these systems at a distance and then seeing their postcards up close. Uh, we, we've made mistakes, I think, with life as we know it and finding solar system as we know it. And, and we've got tangled up in that. And maybe the broader lesson should be we should be looking for life not as we know it. But I'm just excited that I think that's so much harder. Tam, your idea that we're on the brink of fingernail, just about to grab life as we know it as a question in the universe. I think that's tremendously exciting. Do we have any hope of going and visiting any exoplanets or sending probes out there? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I'm building a small mission to try to find whether there's a, an Earth mass planet in the Alpha Sen system, which is our nearest one. That's something that 15 years ago, nobody had even a, a ghost of a chance to do. But this speaks back to Ben's point. We've got plan A, well, there's no, there's no planet B. If you want to get a tiniest, tiniest mass across these interstellar voids, our, our fastest space probe, we're accustomed to, oh yeah, NASA might send something to Enceladus or something to Venus. The next star is over the hills and far away. It would take 100,000 years at the speed that the Voyager space probe travels to get to our very nearest star, 100,000 years. So the universe is this 
fractal place. We, we live in a very small corner, and the next step is very, very large. But it's one we can now dream about. Astronomers Peter Tuthill and Michelle Bannister with astrophysicist Chelsea Wang and Benjamin Pope on the adventure that is the world beyond our own. This event, the Goldilocks Zone, Hunting for Exoplanets, was hosted by astrophysicist and TV presenter Tamara Davis at the World Science Festival Brisbane in March. And the festival is coming up again next year. Look out for the festival program. I'll probably see you there. Yay. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can find and follow Big Ideas from the Big Ideas website and on our website. Be sure to look for Be In Our Audience. Just scroll on down and that's a whole host of events that I have coming up and we'd love to see you at them around different parts of Australia. And if you're in Sydney next week, I'll be hosting a panel on Wednesday the 10th of October at the Art Gallery of New South Wales at the Accountability in Crisis Conference. It's going to be a cracker. Details on the Big Ideas website. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.